0: You have to stay on top of trends. Today's leaders always need to be learning. In this environment of limited resources, the only way to remain competitive is your ability to leverage your most important resource. Welcome to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. In this program, we'll dive into leadership fundamentals that are essential to your success. Now, here's your host, Tom Korea.
1: Good Monday morning. Welcome back to another episode of Your Evolving Leadership Journey. And once again, if you go to Your Evolving Leadership yourevolvingleadershipjourney.com, you will find all of our past guests, any of the future ones that are scheduled, and everything you need to know about the show, which is all about continuous learning and leadership development. And once again, we have another great author to speak with you today. And his name is Scott Mouts. He is the author of Find the Fire. And this is going to be a session about becoming inspired about what you do at work. And one of the notes in Scott's um, episode description says he teaches the right question to ask and uncovers the most common and caustic inspiration driving forces. So I'm excited to talk about that. And first, let's welcome Scott. Well, thank you, Scott, for joining us today.
2: Right on, Tom. Thanks for what you do and your mission. I, I'm a believer in it. And I know your followers are too. So I'm pumped up. I'm ready to help your listeners find the fire.
1: Great. Well, that's what we want to talk about. I think everybody would want to know that. And uh, so just from your biography, I want to uh, tell us a little about yourself, but also tell us what you mean by others oriented leadership, because our audience is servant leadership primarily, but uh, anybody interested in leadership development.
2: Yeah, that makes sense, you know. Anybody who visits my website can find out, you know, the basics of being, you know, like that I'm an ex-Procter and Gamble guy for several decades, that I teach at Indiana, that I have a massive ink column and all that stuff. I'm obviously an author. You know, what I thought would help, Tom, is to tell you uh, the briefest story of a statistic that changed my life and put me on this journey towards servant leadership, my, my version of it, what I call others-oriented orient, others leadership. Sure, please was, do. Yeah, I was At Procter and Gamble, uh, this was by now probably almost nine, ten years ago, and really enjoying my job there. Uh, I was very blessed to run some of the very largest multi-billion-dollar businesses. But I came across a statistic that really resonated with me, which is that seventy percent, seven zero percent, of the American workforce and global workforce can be coded as disengaged. And when I read that and I found I heard it from Gallup, I didn't believe it. I thought that can't possibly be true. And by now, in this circle, the folks that listen to this type of podcast probably know that number and have heard it 100 times. Mm -hmm. At the time when I heard it for the first time, I I thought that can't be right. But when I stepped back and thought about it, it actually made sense to me because as much as I love what I did in the corporate world, I could see those pockets of people that had effectively quit and stayed at work. And I thought, I think I may have found my mission. Mm. I think I may have found what I need to do with the rest of my life. And I began my plot and my plan right in that moment to say, I know someday I'm going to have to leave corporate to help others become a better version of themselves. How might I do that? And that's when I realized and I started an intense study of the best leaders in the world and discovered that most of them have an others orientation. They simply understand that leadership is not about you. It's about anything but. It's about servitude towards your fellow man and woman. It's others-oriented. And once I had those kind of two North Stars, like the statistic that I can't live with in my life without doing something about it, a higher order of purpose, and once I understood that I think I have learned an awful lot about how to change that, off I went on my journey. And it's helped shape who I am today and, and you know why I'm on your show today.
1: Well, that's great. I got to tell you, um, you stole my first question, but that's all right because what I wanted to ask you was tell us how did you find your fire to write Find the Fire? But you've answered that just now. So thank you for doing that. Uh, Look, a reminder to the listeners our call in number is 866 472 5790. Again, that's 866 472 5790. All right, so here's the next question. You write in your book, what drags people down are self-defeating beliefs and thought processes. So, and, and then you're, you're, you know, this book is about, you know, take regaining control and capturing control of your life. So go ahead and just give us kind of an overview of where you're taking the, the reader.
2: Yeah. In the, in the book, what, what I try to discern is, is simply this, Tom. You know, if you follow this thought through, like, wait a minute, 70% of the workforce is disengaged. That, that's incredible. The next question you need to ask is, well, how did that happen? How did we get to that state? Because if if you think back to any time you started a job, you can't help but be excited. Mm-hmm. Pa- you know, passion is everywhere. Learning and growth and opportunity. You, you, you envision what could be possible. You envision what could come next. If you don't have to try to be inspired. You just are. And yet something happens to get to that statistic where 70% of us are disengaged. What happens along the way? I began a study of that intensely. And what I discovered, Tom, was that we're asking ourselves the wrong question, actually. And, what, you know, this is what the data tells us. I've, I've had a chance to dig deeply into this. It shows us that when we lose that inspiration, we can feel that sense of, man, I'm just not feeling it at work anymore. We ask ourselves the wrong question. We'll say, well, you know what? <clears throat> what inspires me? And I'm just going to try to do more of that in my life. That's what research shows about 80% of us subconsciously tend to do when we feel the spark going out. The problem with that is, is when we say, okay, what inspires me to try to do more of it? The answer to that question tends to be elusive or repressed and we just can't bring it into our lives. For example, for some people, what sparks them is a sunset. For others, it's a great vision, an empowering leader, a wonderful quote. You don't have all day long to sit around and wait and find those things and bring them into your life. And even when you do, those notes of inspiration might get repressed by a toxic workplace you're working in. The truth is, we're asking the wrong question. The question we should be asking is not, you know, what inspires me and how, you know, I'll do more of it. The question is, how did I lose my inspiration in the first place? And the answer produces the premise of the entire book, Find the Fire. Because what I've found are there are what I call the anti-muses, sources that drain the inspiration from our life quietly, evilly, subconsciously. And then you look up one day and you're like, holy moly, how did this happen? I, I remember day one on the job and I felt great about it. And now, The life has been sucked out of my job, and i am effectively quit and stayed. And the book is about these forces that drain our
1: inspiration over time. Great. Now, look, uh, for our listeners, in his book, Scott talks about nine different anti-muses. And um, I want to ask you this question because let's rewind to your Procter & Gamble. So we need people like you for hopefully the reason that I'm going to paint this picture is, you know, you said, well, what are, how did I lose the inspiration? Well, I, I don't see you as the type of person you lost your inspiration when you were at Gamble, but you found a better inspiration while you were there. And the, so hold, hold on for a second. I'm going to ask you a question, but you know, I would tell you when I went to work, when I was in the army, I loved every day. And if I were young and I had, and I were healthy, I would want to do it all over again because I was in the right place. And I do believe you talk about um, something along those lines in your book, but for you, how did you make the switch from doing something that you were good at and you enjoyed, and what caused you to be more inspired? Yeah, super question, Tom. And the best
2: way I can put it is the power of a um, a greater mission and the power of a greater calling. And, you know, it was really interesting, Tom. When I when it came down to the point that I was going to leave Procter & Gamble, um, a lot of people, you know, I, look, I was blessed to have tricked enough people at P&G to let me run some pretty big businesses. You know, I guess I was doing all right. And a lot of people were surprised at the announcement when it came. And and they were wondering, well, why? Why would you leave a trajectory and, you know, a job that you clearly love? And the answer to the question was simply this. It came down to really just one, one simple question. Will my platform for making a difference in people's lives be bigger if I stay here or if I go and pursue this dream of being an author, a writer, a speaker, a coach, a workshop orientator? And when I put it that way, all the other things that came into the question, you know, the plus and minuses columns that we all make before we make a big decision. Okay, well, what about salary? Okay, well, what about my sense of identity? Okay, well, what about all the friends I'm leaving behind? all, All of that, all aside, one question and only one question mattered. Will I serve people better and will my platform grow for doing that more by leaving the corporate job? and doing this or by staying in the corporate job? And the answer became clear to me. And in fact, I had my cake and I ate it both ways, so to speak. I started writing when I was still at Procter & Gamble, setting up, preparing for my exit. And I published my first book, Make It Matter while I was still at Procter & Gamble to start the journey so that I could quiet down the other fears of, you know, well, what about generating income and what about all of those things and having a sense of identity. But it all came down to that one question, question, Tom. and, And when I answered it, in that way that I knew I could have a bigger
1: impact doing what I'm doing now it was easy Mm -hmm. now you use an expression that I I had to write it down because I swear every time I I hear it I I scratch my head and that's you had your cake and eat it and as a little boy (laughs) I always wondered what good is having cake if you don't get to eat it anyway. Yeah, what's the point? Actually, it's kind of redundant. Yeah, Yeah. you're right. You're right. So so look, to to kind of recapture what Scott was talking about, and and he does talk about this in another part of his book, but I don't remember specifically where, and I'm not that far in my notes that I'm looking at, but you're talking about what I I would call purpose. Everybody needs to find their purpose. And in a part of your book, you also say, you got to discover who you are in your passion. Do you remember, I'm sure you remember, uh, what part of that book is, what, what are you talking about and addressing in that part of the book?
2: Yeah, it's 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 more really about you know in the book I talk about the importance of coming to grips with what really drives you at your core and ignoring the noise in the system. Stopping, you know, stop trying to evaluate and live your life based on what you think other people want you to. It's about what you think is right and deep inside. And a lot of what distracts us, Tom. And gets us to be uninspired. And I talk about this a little bit in the book is just this assumption that I have to live the life others expect of me and not the life that I really want to. And it's no wonder that you can't you wake up one day and you find that you're not inspired if you're truly not pursuing a path that you're meant to and that you want to. It's so many distractions coming, all understandable. You know, like, well, what will people think of me if I leave this job to go do that? Will I ever make enough money? Is it, is it prestigious enough for me to stop and pursue this path instead of that path? All of that noise gets in the way, and it's understandable for sure. But it's so important to stay true to what it is you really believe that you want to do if you want to stay inspired over the long haul.
1: Great. Well, look, um, so again, I like to recap things. You talked about expectations and trying to meet other people's expectations. That's never a good plan because um, you've got to be happy with yourself first if you're going right. to make other people happy. And where you were really going, and you cover quite a bit of this in this book, so we're leading to it, is fear. Um, yeah. h- how do you want to introduce fear before I get to my questions?
2: Yeah, boy, I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> where to start with fear, Tom? I, you know, I talk a lot about fear. Um, fear in uh, one of my keynotes. And, you know, there's a fear effect that I would really want your listeners to, to be aware of, that its impact in making it almost impossible to be inspired at work because fear, it disrupts your preparedness for your mind to accept inspiration because you, the mind can focus on nothing else. It blocks action. It dissuades us from discovering and growing deep inside. Fear engages our brain in the wrong conversation. And we've all done it, right? You catch yourself, oh my gosh, how did I go down this rabbit hole where I took this small thing and I've catastrophized it into this awful thing through my fear. That's what your brain does. It engages, uh, uh, you know, fear engages your brain in the wrong conversation. It distorts reality. It is the exact opposite of being inspired. And so I I, I spend an entire robust chapter talking about our fear uh, in many senses, fear of failure, fear of criticism, um, and, and I go after it pretty hard.
1: Yeah, you do. And, and, uh, you know, you caused me to think of a story that I want to share with you and and the listeners, and I want you to be able to dissect it and uh, go from there. Um, So I think back in my life, my career, you know, in the Army, I jumped out of airplanes, I rappelled out of helicopters, I flew helicopters, and I would say I was pretty fearless when I was younger. I don't have that same sense of uh, attitude as much anymore, but uh, I don't have the same health that I did but uh, at any rate, so the other day or not too long ago, I have our two young boys they're nine and seven they're walking the dog together because I want to teach them responsibility now they had a problem because they couldn't control the dog the dog interacts with another dog the other person's not happy I get that and i what I don't part of what was going through my mind is, is that um, the police got involved. It was not blown up or anything, but, but where I'm going with this whole thing is, is in my mind, I want my children to grow up being responsible and not afraid of things and being able to go out and venture. So um, without getting into my personal situation, can you talk about fear and what what are your thoughts by just hearing that simple little story?
2: Yeah, that, no, Tom, you're not alone. <laughs> it makes a ton of sense. And uh, boy, i Boy, I got deep in studying uh, fear, and, you know, and I, if I could, I'd like to share a few reframes for your listeners sure. of when that fear of failure kicks in, some of the most powerful free reframes that I can recommend to anybody to help you past what could be a f- ultimately part of the root of what you're talking about is a fear of failure. Let me give you just a couple of reframes. What if you were to tell your sons, what if any leader out there would tell the people that they work for, to tell any loved one, that, 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 you know, that, that in truth, there's only three ways that you actually fail when you quit, when you don't improve, or when you never try. Mm-hmm. What if I were to tell your listeners that failure is an event? It's never a person. I wish I had a dime, Tom, for every single time <laughs> somebody that I was coaching came to me convinced that some thing that had happened, some bad thing that happened was a harbinger of future bad things to come. You know, they, they assumed the failure, forgetting that you are bigger than any mistake you make. That failure is only an event. It is never a person. What if I were to tell your listeners that failure, it doesn't happen to you. It happens for you. I fundamentally believe that. And that's the attitude that you have to take, that even when some things go wrong, it's for a reason. It's for, so that you can learn and grow not be crushed. Just a few more reframes. You know, what if I were to tell you that when you fail, you don't, you're not the one that suffers, actually. It's your ego that's oh, suffers. Right, right. And your ego—only well, like, you, because I've read your book, but yeah, it was yeah. Like, yeah. Your ego and you—that you're two separate things. A couple more reframes. You know, what if I told you that your fear of failure it shouldn't scare you? Actually, you know that pit mm-hmm. that you feel before you're about to try something—it's it, there to tell you that something must be worth it. Or guess what? You'd feel nothing. So just a few reframes for you, um, Tom. I could I could keep going, but it's it's really don't, important. Keep
1: going if you want to. Go ahead. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let me throw out another one of my favorites. The, the failure, frankly, it has to be a part of your portfolio. Anybody you ever get on your show, Tom, that's succeeded and has done anything of note, I guarantee you failure is part of their portfolio. It, It just is. There's nobody out there that doesn't have that. And in fact, what has made them successful, and I've seen this in my research, a large part of it is in fact how they react to failure. Not whether or not they have failures. So it's so important for your listeners to take a chance to step back and reframe when they're starting to feel that pit in the base of their stomach.
1: So I want I want to interject and have you come on this as well, because I speak as well and I had a speaking coach and she forced me to to dig into my my failures in life and experiences. And those were the stories that were going to resonate with the listeners. And and she was she was good, she was tough. And and where I'm going with this is it for it forced me to learn lessons that I overlooked as I was experiencing them. So, do you want to talk about what, because you really learn most from your failures, not from your successes? I would argue. Oh, there's, uh, I mean, there's no question about it.
2: I learned about resolve from um, at the time, you know, what was a, a devastating failure to me, Tom. Um, if I may quickly share the story with uh, with you and your listeners, please do. Um, you know, eighty percent of human beings say they want to write a book someday. Then if you follow the statistics through, you know exactly where I'm going with this of those 80% an incredibly small percent, every start of that percent an incredibly small percent ever get a actual deal on and on and on and it boils down to a a minute percentage of people that actually get published. For me, it was a big part of my dream to um, be published through quote unquote traditional media uh, just, just for the business plan that I had in mind. That's it. I have tons of friends that write self published books and they're incredibly successful. For me and my model, I wanted to be picked up by a traditional New York publisher. And so I spent almost, oh gosh, I would say a little over four years writing a book before I had any deal so that I could then backwrite a crisp book proposal so that if I ever got a book deal, the book would almost virtually be done because this was while I was still at Procter & Gamble. I had a very full-time job, and at that point, it was the slightest seed of an idea that I would leave that corporate environment. So I had to know I could accomplish this. So here I am. You know, I spent well over four years writing this book, getting into a proposal, and uh, you know, shop around for a literary agent. Lucky enough to get one. Uh, the agent was great. Really worked with me hard, and his style was to go one publishing house at a time. All right, Scott, I'm going to take your uh, your your manuscript, and your proposal, and I'm going to go to the first publisher, and we're going to wait and see what happens. And I waited about a month, and he came back. Oh, you know, so close, you know, but no cigar, you know. In the end, he decided, blah, 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 they're not going to take it. Okay, right back up at bat. Second one, another month later, oh, so close, no cigar. Third month, fourth, fifth, sixth, we're 13 months later now, and uh, now my agent is just, he's... I think he just kind of had it with me. He's like, okay, this isn't going anywhere. Um, hey, dude, why don't you go do kind of your own thing? And that was a pretty devastating moment for a guy who had put four and a half years of work into writing a book, had the centerpiece now. By this time now, things had crystallized for me, and now I knew what I wanted to do because, you know, the book had do- was done. And it was a cent- centerpiece that had just caved in on me, and it was a pretty crushing blow. And uh, I remember asking, you know what, we got one more, one more person on the list here that you and I agreed to. And I'll tell you what, um, hey, if we can go back to doing this, this, and this to the proposal like I wanted to originally. You know, that's what I'd like to do. I want to do that. Let's do that. We did. And within 24 hours, I had my first book deal. And I learned through that, Tom, you know, there were some pretty dark nights for me where I thought, like, I put my heart and soul into this. And I'm, it's clear I'm not good enough. That's what the universe is telling me. I thought I was a good writer. I thought I had a big idea. It's super clear. I'm not good enough. And just learning in that moment not to catastrophize, it didn't identify who I was and, you know, what I was meant to do on this earth. It helped me to understand the importance of persistence and perseverance that when a window closes uh, or, or a door closes, a window opens, as they say. It helped me to understand and redefine what failure really was. Mm-hmm. And I was coming to grips with, if I never produce a book, could I still be achieve my goal in other ways, like writing for things like Inc. today? And I started that journey. And then when the book came to fruition, a lot of the other things that I had started because I chose to be resilient, those all blossomed at the same time, and then things really started going. So one of my greatest failures in the moment was a powerful formation of who I am today.
1: That's great. Look, and, and I, it's a great setting as well. Cause I, I want to kind of circle back to this as we go through the other parts of your book, you went through a discovery process and I, and I yeah. think it will be very helpful to the listeners for you to tie that back. But first what I want you to do is I want to talk to you. I want you to talk and explain this concept of a funnel and the negative <laughs> spiral and that, cause it's a great, Analogy and uh, and I it, and it will paint the vivid picture in the listener's mind. So you're you're a speaker, you get it, and they're not seeing you. So you're gonna you're gonna metaf- <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna describe this picture in vivid detail so that they understand this funnel, and we're gonna go from there if you don't mind. <laughs> and I know you can do it.
2: Absolutely. Okay, listeners, I want you to imagine a funnel. Uh, and I want you to picture it kind of upside down where the skinny end is sitting on the bottom and the, the big wide end is on the top. Here's what my research has shown me. It's what I call the fear of failure funnel. Imagine you start out at the top, okay, the, the wide end of the funnel before it gets narrow. When you start there, that's kind of where we all start out, right? Possibility is huge. The scope of what can be done in your life seems endless. The ideas that you have, they're big, they're huge. Uh, the, The energy you have, the passion, it's all this big, wide, vast universe. And then guess what happens? Fear of failure takes hold of us. And slowly, and if you could see me on the camera, you know, I'm winding my finger corkscrew style downward. We slowly begin to spin down that funnel into the smaller and smaller and smaller parts of the funnel. Constricted, constricted, constricted. And what's happening is our worldview is changing as fear of failure kicks in. All of a sudden, the scope of possibilities seems a lot smaller. Uh, We seem limited. Our worldview becomes much, much, much smaller. The scope of what we think we're capable of doing begins to shrink. And before you know it, you're at the other end, the narrow end of the funnel. And what started as a massive circle of a broad worldview has now become a tiny pinhole through which you see the world. You have gone down the fear of failure funnel. And it's, uh, you know, I I hope my book, Find the Fire, can help you reverse the flow in that fear of failure funnel um, so that you can open up your your worldview again. And, you know, Tom, I, I can back that data up with just lots of experience. I bet you know, I bet you know, Tom, people that are at the narrow side of that fear of failure funnel. The way they're seeing the world now is constricted because they've let fear of failure do that to them.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and that's why I love your analogy so much, and uh, we've got a few minutes to break, so what we're going to do is just kind of wrap up what we've been talking about here for this first half of the segment, and then we're going to get into that, um, because yeah, all too often, people get into that negative spiral, and you are going to help them reverse the spiral and get back up where they're seeing brighter possibilities and that sort of thing. So look, everybody, we've been speaking with Scott Mouts. He is the author of Find the Fire and another book. Um restate the other book? I'm sorry. Oh, uh, make it matter. Make it matter. So he's all about helping you improve the quality of your life. And this is great for leaders. And like I said, for all everybody, uh, go to yourevolvingleadershipjourney.com. You'll find the details of Scott. Um, You'll have pointers to his book, to his social media websites, and not only Scott, but all the other guests that I have had on this show. So um, they're all fantastic, and I've appreciated them. Um, So once again, uh, we're going to go to break here right now, and when we come back, we're going to explore these possibilities that he has in mind for you. Thank you very much. We'll be right back.
2: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
3: As Tom works with leaders, something he consistently sees is their struggle with engagement and retention. Then their frustration with having to repeat the employee development process again and again. What most people don't know is the answer lies in love. Once they realize that they simply need to apply the golden rule, the results are surprising. They start bringing out the best in others. They develop confident, capable employees, and they find they have more fun and freedom and less stress in their lives. Perhaps most importantly, they satisfy what they've been craving. Now they've created the culture that they and their team have always wanted. This is when synergy takes over and the results are astounding. The first step is critical. When you exhibit the self-awareness and humility that shows you need to learn and improve continuously, you set the example and encourage others to follow. To learn more, visit Blackhawk Leadership Development at blackhawkspeaks.com. That's blackhawkspeaks.com.
0: Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy.
2: the bottom line in business.
0: You are listening to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you have questions or comments about the program, you may send an email to Tom at BlackHawkSpeaks.com. Now, back to your evolving leadership journey.
1: Well, welcome back to Your Evolving Leadership Journey, another episode with Scott Mouts, the author of Find your, the Fire, and we want you to find your fire. Now, look, uh, I typically have a bunch of questions to go through, and Scott is a fantastic guest, and hes I'm going to just open this wide up because in our break, he's talked about a couple things, and uh, I know that uh, if I try to constrain him, I'm not going to get the best that he has to offer. So go ahead. What were you thinking, Scott? We'll go from yeah,
2: there. I, I thought it'd be interesting for your listeners to continue on in our discussion of fear. Uh, we okay. talked about fear of failure. And, and so often after a keynote, people will come up and ask me about fear of criticism. And I wanted to, I wanted to get into that one a little bit, Tom, because it's, a, it's pretty rich. And the best thing that I can share, I want to dig into what social psychologists teach us is the single most powerful starting point for people that have this fear of criticism. And that is simply to remember, you know, to decide, first of all, who gets to criticize you because not all criticizers are created equal. Some shouldn't even get a seat at the table, you know, so set criteria for those that make the cut. So for example, you know, I don't know, your boss, your boss's boss, your key teammates, you know, your spouse, they sure as heck, you know, get a vote and getting to criticize you. But, you know, Bob and accounting and your mother-in-law, they could pound salt. They just don't, they don't get a vote in saying whether or not you know, what you're doing is right. And, and by the way, I'm not saying to make your circle of people that you allow to criticize you so infinitely small that it keeps you from getting productive growth. I'm just saying that you have to remember that you don't want to give undue influence to people who shouldn't have it. And research shows us, get ready for this, that you know we now know <laughs> that we're four times more likely to remember criticism than praise, so it's undue influence when you give that ability to the wrong person. Studies also indicate that in truth, only about 15% of all the criticism that we receive can truly be coded by a third-party objective observer as being fair and useful, and yet we take more than 85% of all criticism to heart. So to help your viewers, the ones that have a hard time dealing with it, let's go back to that 15%. When it's truly warranted, you know, I would ask them to remember the words and the thoughts of a uh, theater critic, Albert Williams. He was a famous uh, theater critic, Tom, that was once receiving an award for uh, a lifetime achievement of being a fantastic theater critic. He was explaining to the audience in his accept- acceptance speech why critics do what they do. You know, it's not because they want to, they're mean-spirited. It's not because they want to save you 12 bucks from watching a crappy movie. It's because they are interested in their art and they want to create, help create better art. And so the question is, is do you see those valid criticizers as trying to create better art, better art in the form of a better version of you? And if you don't, haven't thought about it that way before, I encourage your listeners to really think about it that way, that the people that deserve a vote that are criticizing you when it stings the most, and by the way, the, uh, the brain registers criticism in the same exact spot that it registers physical pain. That's why a barb from someone physically seems to sting because psychologically and physiologically, it uses the same part of the brain. But when you receive those and they're warranted, just remember that this person is trying their level best, like a theater critic or a movie critic, to create better art. And if you could see it that way, it helps. And, and, you know, as for that 85% that we talked about of criticism that's unwarranted, you know, you just you have to remember, you decide who gets to, to criticize you. I, I think Eleanor Roosevelt had it exactly right when she said, nobody can make you infer- feel inferior without your consent, you know, your consent. And I, you know, the last thought I'll give you on this is I I like to mentally fire back to those 85%, you know, the the trolls, if you will, the ones that their job is to pepper you with unhelpful criticism. I like to just remind them of something that Apple CEO Tim Cook once said, which is, you know what? We don't build monuments to trolls. So you can place that unhelpful criticism where it belongs because it's not doing anybody any good.
1: So I'm pretty passionate about this topic of fair criticism. All, all of that making sense, Tom? It is. Uh, I want to try to paraphrase and, and reform an idea and then ask a different question yeah. and have you share this with the listeners. So it was very interesting to hear you say that the in the brain that um, this pain, whether it's a physical pain or emotional pain, comes from the same spot um, of the brain, which caused me to think about the different forms of abuse out there and what goes on in society and that sort of thing. And so my mind was wandering some more, and, but really where I wanted to get back to is, so what if you're a leader and, you know, some people would say feedback's not a good thing. I had an author who wrote a book called no more feedback. And it's, I believe it's all about how you deliver things and how you get people to, as where you're going is to actually take control and give themselves feedback because that feedback is probably more valuable is to be, Comfortable enough in your own skin to be able to give yourself feedback. But let's say you're a others-oriented leader like you talk to or the servant leader that I want to speak to, and you truly want to make a positive impact on the person that you're giving feedback to, I'm doing um, quotes here for those who you can't see me, Scott can. (laughs) Um, You want to give positive feedback. You want to give positive criticism. I'm the type of person who likes to take that, but there were, let's say for lack of a better way to say it, some people don't have as thick of a skin. And so if your true intent is to give great feedback or criticism and um, how do you, what do you say to the people who their intentions are good, but their delivery is not right? What, What do you say? (laughs) <laughs> to overcome fear for those other individuals. Yeah, so in a, a couple of things. So, you know, to the person
2: giving the feedback, I would say, you know, you're, first of all, okay, you're, you're not alone because we're pre, we're almost predisposed genetically wired to give feedback poorly, right? And uh, some rec- research I ran, we found, and it, it corroborated with Gallup research that showed that, you know, first of all, only 21% of people say, in the past six months, I can remember my boss giving me any feedback. So- if you've been giving feedback step one congratulations you're at least giving it most managers don't but also understand that a major study showed that in 131 case studies 38% of the time the feedback given actually hurt subsequent mm. performance it, it didn't do any good and the people receiving it say that less than a quarter of the time the feedback was helpful so to the people giving the feedback I would say look we have a quantity and a quality problem it's not easy Thank you for, for giving it, right? And then I would launch into typical tips of giving feedback, you know, about you got to be specific. You have to be sincere. You got to be calibrating. Let them know after they hear the feedback, put it into context for them. Is it unusual at this point in their career or is it, you know, exactly right? and Or does it mean that they're off track? That's for the giver of the feedback. For the receiver of the feedback who's like, okay, I know that person was trying to give me good feedback, but they did a horrible job at it. <laughs> Remember it for its intent and remember how difficult feedback really is. You know, I take them back to that, um, you know, sometimes I coach people that are like, they've had it with their boss. When the boss does bother to give feedback, it's totally useless and it's unhelpful. And I remind them of how difficult it is to give feedback. I give them statistics. But then I also say, you know, it's also your job to say how you would like to receive feedback. You know, Tom, in general, for example, I found there's, you know, three kinds of people in the world. Well, the first kind of person says, you know what? Just give me the feedback straight, straight from the heart. No chaser. Just get it out of the way. That, that's me. Like, I can't even enjoy the good stuff if I don't hear that stuff first. Second kind of person is a person who says, no, 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 no. Give me the compliment sandwich. Tell me something that I good that I did. Then give me the hard stuff in the middle. Mm-hmm. Then give me the good stuff again. Mm-hmm. And then the third type of person is the person who says they want the first, but they really want the second. So, so you have to be really clear on how it is that you want to um, receive the feedback. And also, don't be afraid to give feedback on feedback. A lot of managers, um, they have the best intent in doing it. They know how difficult it is. Um, and they can even tell when they're struggling in the middle of it. And I can promise you many managers would really appreciate hearing from the employee, this is what you're doing right on feedback and what you're doing wrong on feedback. Most people don't think about that because they're like, oh, he's giving me a gift and I'm going to spit in his face or her face because of the gift. No, if they're doing a horrible job and it's making you more confused, you should give them feedback on the feedback.
1: Yeah. I mean, it definitely needs to be a conversation and, um, you know, there's, there's so much I can cover with you and I got to pick, I got to pick my battle here. So um one of the things you write in your book is you talk about defining the rules of engagement and you're talking about how the person receiving the criticism if you will can take more control do you want to talk about that rules of engagement concept that you talk about and i'm sure you know in the military we have that roe thing all the time so i happen to have been attracted to your comment about rules of engagement Yeah, that's no, 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 no worries. I,
2: I can, I could completely understand that. Yeah, it's more of, uh, and you talk, you're talking about relative to
1: criticism, right? Receive. Yeah, because you're you're talking about how to embolden yourself to take more risk and defining you, 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 in your section about settling and boredom and you know, oh, the yeah, rejected yeah. section.
2: Oh yeah, okay. So just just trying to figure out, yeah, the rules of engagement. Yeah, this is really really important because what I've learned um, through research and personal experience, Tom, is that. You know, a lot of times, and this is a way to reverse the fear of failure funnel, by the way, it's, you know, you have to really understand the rules of risk. Let me give you the very, a very short story. I had a chance to work with a casino company out in Las Vegas. I won't tell you which name. And they told me they have a problem with one game in particular on the floor. It causes a throughput problem where people um, stop, watch the game, and it's clogging up the floors and the percentage and the ratio of people that are watching it. Not spending their money on it to the ones actually spending their money on it is way out of whack, so it's creating a throughput problem. That game is craps. For those of you <laughs> your listeners that don't know, craps is a big round table with dice you throw the dice, and if you've ever seen a craps table, it is intensely confusing. I mean, I, I, in theory, I play craps and I don't know how to play craps. <laughs> you know I go every once in a while with grad school friend, grad school friends or whatever. and what the, the Vegas found was that people you know, if you've ever heard the, t- the term step up and roll the dice, what, it came from Vegas and the game of craps because people won't step up and roll the dice because they don't understand the game. They don't understand how they're going to risk the rules of risk. Meanwhile, back at the office, the same thing is true. People don't understand the rules of engagement when it comes to risk taking. They don't understand the rules. What makes a, like how many leaders out there could say, if I ask them right now, write down what makes a good risk? What makes a bad risk? What happens if the person succeeds with the risk? Who has to approve the risk before it's taken? What happens if you need more resources along the way with that risk? On and on and on. Most people haven't defined as leaders what a good risk looks like. So what happens? People assume the worst fear of failure kicks in like, well, I'm not taking a risk, especially if you're in an environment where the leader talks a big game about, I want people to take risks. And so then what happens? Somebody fails at a risk and they get hammered. Mm-hmm. And they never spelled out what a good risk looks like. So it's really, really important to spell out the rules of engagement as a leader of risk taking so that people will take more risks and you'll reverse that fear of failure funnel. Uh, very, very powerful way to do it. And it's very simple. You can sit down and figure it out. If people were saying, yeah, but Scott, you know, in my work environment, we're conservative. We never take risks. Ah, baloney. I don't agree with that. Even if you can just say, you know, uh, if you could sit down and say with the lawyers, before you tell me, the, you know, the only risk is no risk, tell me what the rules are. Even lawyers will have rules of risk to share with their, their employees.
1: That's interesting because uh, when I reflect back on my Army career in aviation, you know, the, the thing that I would tell my troops would be, look. Um, The risks for me were, if it was a safety issue, then that's definitely not worth taking. And if it were a gross misuse of resources. And other than that, kind of went back to what my guest last week was talking about. If they're 70% there, you want to delegate them. You want to get them uh, to take more and more ownership of it and take charge. But I don't want to get off on that tangent. I want to get back to your book. And I want to get to this next section where you you talk about how do you get learning and growing again. And this is where um, I referred to this earlier. But two of the points you make there is becoming who you are versus growth for its own sake, and then work on your life versus in your life. Do you want to comment any further?
2: Yeah, let me talk about working on your life versus uh, in your life. That's a really big one. What I find when, uh, you know, a big source of a lack of inspiration is people, they just wake up and they're like, I feel stale. I'm not learning anything anymore. I'm not growing. And it's almost intuitive and unspoken. They ask themselves, am I simply wasting my time here? Is that, what's, is that what's going on? And in those cases, when I interview people, and I've, I've interviewed over 3,000 for this book, and I ask them about that, most often what I find is that they're working on their life and they're not working in it, meaning they're going through the system. They're going through the processes. Uh, you know, um, Sorry, I, I reversed that. They're working in their life, not on it. They, you know, they're, they're working in the midst of it. They're caught up in uh, the, the drama of the day, the drama of the moment. They're not taking a, a chance to step back and think about How do I want to work on my life to improve it? How do I want to change the direction of what I'm doing? The big picture, getting out of the day-to-day minutiae and what I'm caught in to step back. And it sounds simple, Tom, but sometimes it's an epiphany for folks where they realize like, you know what? For the last five years, I've just been working in my life. I haven't been working on my life. Mm -hmm. And I really need to change that. And I find that's a major turning point for people to help get them learning and growing uh, uh, once again
1: yeah and for our listeners, I would share that you know what what Scott's proposing is you've heard it about business leaders all the time you hear them being told you need to be stop working in your business and start working on your business and and so the same parallels are true and you've 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 heard them talk about having purpose and mission statements for companies, well, you can have them for your individual life too um now. There's so much that I could be talking to you about. And, you know, I guess, I, I Scott, if you want to talk about that any further, great. Um, I'll give you, like, the opportunity to, to go through anything else that's really on the tip of your mind or at the top of your mind, excuse me, that you want to share. Because I do have some questions that I want to get through. And there's so much to cover in your book. And you're just going to have to go and pick it up if you want to learn everything that I've uh, that I'm not going to be able to ask. So, anything you want to talk top of mind before I get into some specific questions?
2: Yeah, you know, one thing I wanted to make sure I get across today is, um, oftentimes uh, radio shows or podcasters will ask me to leave, you know, listeners with a piece of advice, and um, I, I just wanted to make sure that I didn't miss this opportunity. Which is, you know, one of the most powerful things I've learned that can help people re inspire themselves, especially in the corporate world, is to focus on authenticity and not approval and so many people get caught up especially in the corporate world that I've taught so many of these people that they get into this rhythm of I am what people say I am I am as good as I was in that last meeting I am as successful as my boss says I am successful I'm as good as the last promotion I got and even if they wouldn't say that they're approval seekers their attitudes, their beliefs, their behaviors, their actions would point to they need approval to feel happy in life in, in some way. And the opposite, the alternative to seeking approval is to seek authenticity. Not to say that you don't need success in your life, that's not what I'm saying, but to step back and say that it's, it's about becoming the authentic version of who I am and, and simply, am I becoming better than I was yesterday? Yes or no? That is the only comparison that matters is, am I better than who I was yesterday, not am I better than somebody else? Um, I think it's really, really important um, information. And, you know, I, I like to talk about the ninety ten rule, you know, to help improve your self-confidence, which is it's a post I wrote for uh, Huffington Post that actually Ariana Huffington picked up on it and went crazy viral. So I wanted to share it with your listeners. It's the 90-10 rule, which simply says this, how you see yourself, the value you assign to yourself should be based 90% on self-worth, 10% on assigned worth, meaning that 90% of how you value yourself should come from your own self-acceptance, your own self-love, your own self-appreciation. And some people would say, Scott, well, why is it at 100%? Why shouldn't 100% of your worth come from only what you think of yourself? Forget everybody. I think it's unrealistic, Tom. I think we have to reserve that 10% for that external approval, for that boy or that attagirl we get every once in a while to tell us we're back on track. The problem arises when that 90-10 ratio gets out of whack and skewed beyond belief, when the 90% self-worth dwindles down and the 10% assigned worth goes up all of a sudden 60, 70, 80% of your worth is assigned worth based on what other people tell you you're worth. So it's really important to remember the 90-10 rule and to, to strive for approval over authenticity.
1: Yeah, so as you're sharing just now, I am writing down some notes and I'm thinking back and reflecting on my own career. And I got to tell you, you know, I, I kind of shared with you that, you know, I was kind of a fearless person and that didn't come with just the physical part. It came with the job. I mean, I kind of felt like, and I think the reason I enjoyed going to work every morning is because I was fearless when it came to, I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to be who I am. And if it's not the right place that I'm going to move out of this and find a different, um, more satisfying, more rewarding career. Fortunately for me, um, being authentic is exactly what my boss wanted and expected and needed. And, of course, you know, your 90-10 rule, I find applicability there because there are things that I believed in, that, you know, by, by being receptive to that other 10% shaped and changed how I felt. Um, so do you want to follow up on that at all? If you do, great. If not, I'll get into the other questions. No, just
2: simply to say, Tom, that – the fact that it changed how you felt about yourself, that's really the whole point of the ninety ten rule. It's a framework to help keep from the n- very natural human disposition to happen, which is to, before you know it, you look up and you're like, how did I get to be where 50% of how I value myself is based on what other people say? Yeah.
1: Very natural. Okay. Well, look, we have less than 10 minutes, so let me ask. I just want to share some very specific things I wanted to talk to Scott about. He's got a section where he's, it says, how to stop procrastinating and get S uh, <laughs> hashtag at sign um, exclamation point done. You get the idea. At any rate, um, he's ta- one of the things he says is ditch the distractions, and I just got to share this with you because it resonated with me. He says, and I want you to comment it. We remember uncompleted tasks better than we do completed tasks because uncompleting ta- uncompleted tasks nag us. If we manage to start a task, we're much more likely to remember it and be driven to finish it. And I took a personal note. I was like, you know what? That's a great idea. Go ahead. Yeah, it's really true. that uh, What I could tell you is it's
2: not <laughs> it's not just my opinion. It's, it's scientific fact that we know that once you can just simply start Um, uh, something, you're far more likely to actually finish it. And one of the greatest reasons why we become procrastinators is because we we catastrophize how painful it's going to be to get started, right? To just get up and get running. And I, you know, I used to do that all the time, Tom. I would ask myself, you know, I would imagine, oh, it's going to be so painful to get this test started. And then when you get started, you know how it goes. You're like, oh, well, this wasn't so bad. This wasn't so bad after all. And so we know from science that once you get, once that task gets started, the human brain kicks in and you're more likely to complete it. Um, uh, There's a a famous piece of research that was done about people who started doing um, Lego, building Lego machine, little Lego robots. Mm -hmm. And um, the researcher, Dan Ariely, actually, um, he compared the group of people that had started the, the ones, the, 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 the Legos were the ones that hadn't and found the completion rate of the ones that actually just simply started it and the intensity with which they wanted to finish it, even after the time was done in which, okay, you know, the experiment's over, guys, you can go home. The people were like, no, 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 I want to finish it. I want to finish it. I want to finish it. No material benefit other than that human psyche of we want to check off the to-do list. So I know, it, you know, I almost felt bad putting it in the book, Tom. That like, so you're telling me your answer, this A step to procrastination
1: is to just get started. Yeah, <laughs> it's really important to, to do that. You'd be surprised yeah. how things go from there. I don't even think I'm a procrastinator, but I thought that was a huge tip to to get started on some projects that I think are important. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to ask you that. So now you you in, in your loss of control section, which you also have the – you call it reverted. Um, you say this. You say you're, you sacrifice the power of bringing – the authentic you to the table to please others and gain approval. And you, the question you ask is how do you shift the emphasis from pleasing to empowering? Do you want to talk about that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's a, it's a great question. It's so many of us are inherently people pleasers, right? I don't know. Let, let me, ask you this time. Do you, do you, most people I ask say yes. Do you know a people pleaser in your universe, in your world? Yes. Do you like more than one? Do you know like, many two three um you know i guess i haven't thought about it but sure there's more than one of course yeah most people that i ask would say they know when they stop you know first of all they'll say yeah i probably know two or three then i'll ask them okay well are you a people pleaser and they'll say uh yeah well bah, bah, bah. then i ask a few questions and it turns out more of them are people pleasers than you would think And what happens is we get this, we tend to assign, well, those other people are people pleasers and I'm not really a people pleaser. And what happens is we lower their criteria in our own mind for what, you know, how desperate you must be to be a people pleaser. When in truth, we all have these tendencies. We all do these things where we think we're doing them just for other people. We think we're doing them just for approval. And you have to, you know, your listeners have to realize that we all have those tendencies deep within us. And one of the most powerful things I can tell them is, when you do things to please other people, you're giving a gift away, which is your genuine thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, and what you really think about a situation. When you're people-pleasing, you're getting down to a level that you think they wanna hear, they wanna know about, they want you to be and become, and you're withholding your unique gifts to the world. And often when I, when I put it that way, people are like, yeah, I guess I'm withholding something about myself.
1: All right. Well, look, that that's great, and uh, I got, I want to throw in one thing. We've only got a couple minutes left, but uh, you talk about perseverance, and I think this is a good point to end on too. Um, you say developing mental toughness is a science based, science backed up by success, and then you talk about the difference between perseverance and persistence. In two minutes or less, <laughs> can you please talk about that? <laughs> you bet.
2: Perseverance versus persistence. Persistence is when you just don't know when to say when, right? And I think we all know people like this that they're just going to, they just keep, they're not learning from their past mistakes. They're not picking up cues. They're not picking up body language. They're not being realistic about where their goals are and and where they're at relative to those goals. And, and they may even shift along the way. They just persist in these behaviors that don't help, especially when it comes to a goal and perhaps it's, um, a goal that's getting farther and farther away from them. They're not doing anything to fix it. Perseverance is when you're clear in your purpose. You're clear in your mission. You're consistent in its pursuit. You can read the tea leaves. You read body language. You understand what's going. You just know that you haven't gotten that break yet. You just know that if you keep at it with a purity of intent, if you keep at it with a passion, vigor, and in line with your mission, you're ultimately going to get there. And people
1: often confuse the two, persistence versus perseverance yeah you've you've talked about a number of great things. And like I said uh, more than once in this particular episode that uh, I could have gone on various tangents with you, but there's just not enough time in an hour to cover your book. So here just a couple other things that he talked about, and then we're going to have to wrap up. He talks about multitasking as a myth, one of my favorite things to read in here, because I, I, people need to understand that. And again, pick up his book. He talks about reestablishing connections, and you know, you know, know, that's part of what the, is going to help you build those relationships and get that spiral going in the opposite direction. And I just won't do justice to the rest of your book, Scott, but uh, there's so many pearls in there. Um, find a copy of Find the Fire, and if you don't mind, tell us the subtitle of the book. Oh, yeah. Uh, No, no problem. Yeah, it's
2: find the fire, ignite your inspiration, and make work exciting again. And you, uh, you can great, find great it at, uh, oh, sorry, I was going to say, you can find it at Scottmoutz.com, S-C-O-T-T-M-A-U-T-Z.com.
1: Perfect. Yeah. If you don't go there and you go to my website, you'll have a link to your, his book as well. Look, thank you so much, Scott, for being our guest. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, listeners, for listening to another episode of Your Evolving Leadership Journey. And next week, we'll be talking with Ron Edmondson about the seven myths of leadership. So have a great week. I've enjoyed it. All the best to you. Thanks for having me, Tom. Love it.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. Be sure to join host Tom Crea for another edition next Monday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a great week. Thanks again for listening to...